0: I am standing in front of a sign. The sign is wooden, under a small red metal covering to preserve the carvings from rain or shine. The color is still vibrant on the paint, blue and red and white. Emblazoned on the right side of the sign is an odd symbol, otherworldly looking with the number 7 inside of it. It's a circle atop a small plus sign with a half circle on top. This odd marking has been used since about the 16th century to represent the first planet in the solar system, the one closest to the sun, known as Mercury. Next to the symbol, it reads seven names. Alan Shepard Jr., Virgil Gus Grissom, John Glenn Jr., Scott Carpenter, Walter Shearer, Gordon Cooper Jr., and Donald Deke Slayton. To the right, it says the names of their first mission into space, respectively, and when it occurred. The earliest is, of course, Alan Shepherds, who was the first American in space aboard Freedom 7 on May 5, 1961. The latest is Deke Slayton, who didn't fly into space until 1975 for the Apollo-Soyuz flight. Below the names is a sentence in bright red lettering, home of the original seven astronauts. It's true, this inconspicuous hotel with art and photographs from space history hanging in the nearby bars and restaurants once housed the very first astronauts. Today it lies along Atlantic Avenue just north of downtown Cocoa Beach. I slipped into the parking lot one evening, and with not a soul in sight, I approached the pool. There, just beyond an empty restaurant where a photograph of the space shuttle launching could be seen through the windows, is this sign. Today it's a La Quinta Inn. But 60 years ago, it was the Cape Colony Resort, and it was, at least partially, owned by the astronauts themselves. If you've read the right stuff by Tom Wolfe or have seen either of the adaptations, the movie or the excellent Disney Plus TV show from last year, you know how important this motel was for a lot of these men. This was home. This was where they'd wait for launch. This was where they learned of the next step in their lives, whether they'd be launched into space or grounded indefinitely. Many test pilots of this era had been to Florida before, testing various aircraft in our numerous air bases, though mostly in Jacksonville. When they came to Cocoa Beach, they were going to an unknown spot on Florida, and whether they meant it or not, the city boomed in their wake. Cocoa Beach had gained loads of attention thanks to the space program, but up until that moment, it was impossibly small. Its population in 1950 was around 250 individuals. By the time 1960 rolled around, the population skyrocketed, pun intended, up to nearly 3,500 people. Apparently, locals called Cocoa Beach a womb town, as the space industry had brought homes here. And those who wanted to see rockets would come stay at the freshly opened motels with kitschy names, the Starlight Motel being the most famous. NASA had created celebrities in these seven quote-unquote all-Americans, and it was profitable not just for the country at large or the program, but for Cocoa Beach on a much smaller scale. It's important to note how essential these personalities really were. America was in the height of the Cold War, attempting to prove their military and technological strength against their greatest rival, the Soviet Union. Space was the way to prove their prowess, their ability, their strength, and NASA would be the focal point of that fight. You've heard all the stories before, on this show and beyond, but the reasoning behind all the drama needs to be center stage. Yes, we were testing rockets, sending men into space, running flight tests, orbiting the earth, operating the vehicles, and more. That's why the men who were chosen were all test pilots. They were designed to do the job they were asked to do, and mostly, that just meant fly the vehicle where it needed to go. Their personalities, the people they were, the clean-cut, all-American look that they were presenting, that was part of the story. They needed to look and act a certain way, and the drama of upholding those images was, needless to say, a little difficult. By the time Americans landed on the moon, the first humans to ever do so, it was a show of scientific might, but it was also a patriotic mission, a statement of quote unquote, American exceptionalism. That was at the heart of this work, the driving force of these men, the motivating factor to each and every launch, the reason the government kept them funded. That, however, was 60 years ago, and our astronauts are no longer test pilots in a motel fighting a media war against America's global adversaries. NASA's aspirations are much bigger nowadays, and as we're going to discuss this week, that doesn't just affect the types of missions that NASA is operating, it affects the types of astronauts they're sending as well. I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the Artemis program, how NASA is preparing for a return to the moon, and how the idea of what an astronaut can be has changed in the last six decades. My guest this week is Brendan Byrne of WMFE's Are We There Yet? podcast, where he speaks with space experts every week about the comings and goings of NASA, SpaceX, Boeing, and beyond. Brendan's been on the show many times before teaching us about the Floridian astronaut John Young and the early failings of launches at Cape Canaveral. When it came time to discuss Artemis, I knew Brendan was exactly the person to call. After a few minutes of catching up, I asked Brendan about how busy he must be. His podcast and beat cover all the current space news, everything from tests to launches to future projects. Brendan tells me that five years ago when he started his podcast, he never dreamed of being as busy as he is nowadays.
1: There's just, there's always something new. We were talking about this before we got on the show. There's just, there's always something new going on in space. Um, So the point where I'm turning down stories because there's just so much going on.
0: We skim through everything currently happening in the space industry. First of all, there's SpaceX, the company that recently sent Americans back into space from Cape Canaveral. Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley launched from Florida on May 30th of last year up to the International Space Station, an event so incredible that I genuinely wept just watching it. In the last several months, SpaceX has continued running tests on their other vehicle called the Starship.
1: So they've been, they've been launching um, this system, um, doing these test flights on them, and, and basically what they're working on uh, with this system is, is this system can take a lot of stuff away from this planet. So it can either get a bunch of cargo into low Earth orbit, possibly take cargo to the moon, which it has put in a bid for NASA to be one of NASA's next moon landers. It was designed to take people to Mars. So basically, this is just a big, I mean, it was called the BFR for a while, unofficially, Uh, but now it's called Starship. And uh, so so what it needs to do is it needs to launch vertically, do its thing, do its rocket thing. And then when it comes back into an atmosphere, it kind of comes in on its belly to slow itself down. And then it has to land vertically once again, just like how it took off. So SpaceX has been doing all these tests
0: Starship has wrecked a few times now in glorious fireballs, but Brendan says that's kind of the point. You have to see where the failings are to make the ship better. That's how SpaceX develops its technology. Failures are part of the process. Meanwhile, another company, Boeing, is currently working on developing something called a Space Launch System, or SLS. Put simply, the SLS is the part of the rocket that spews the fire and sends the vehicle hurtling into space. And not to mention all that, but NASA just landed a rover on Mars called Perseverance, though everyone affectionately calls it Percy. He landed in late February, another incredible moment for space exploration. Percy is currently gearing up for a test wherein a small helicopter will be launched and possibly fly on Mars.
1: And It was a last minute thing. Like that. that was something that they just had, NASA had the extra cargo space on it and they said, you know, hey, team, do we got anything cool or interesting we want to put on there? And, you know, someone was like, yeah, we got this helicopter we're designing for Mars. You want to (laughs) slap it on there? And like, sure, let's
0: do it. Needless to say, it's a good time to be a fan of space travel and a busy time to be a space reporter, as Brendan can attest. That's why I was extremely grateful that Brendan took some time out of his busy day to chat with me about my personal favorite project that NASA is currently in the process of bringing to life, the Artemis program. Before we get there, let's jump back a few years to those early days of NASA. The Apollo program was the next step of the Mercury program which held the first manned flight missions for the United States. Russia had taken a man into space before the United States was able, putting pilot Yuri Gagarin out of the atmosphere a little under a month before Alan Shepard took his first flight. JFK wanted a human on the moon before the end of the decade, and soon, all programs connected to NASA were focused on that mission. America needed to be the first to the moon. Each of the programs would develop a little more. First, there would be Mercury, then Gemini, then Apollo, which would be the program to go to the moon. They were, of course, correct. The first flight was Apollo 4, launched on November 9, 1967, though no crew people were on board. Apollo 7 launched on October 11, 1968, and was the first actual crew launched on the Apollo vehicle. Wally Shearer, who was one of the original Mercury 7, was actually on board. And then four years passed, with various tests, including multiple landings on the moon. And then the final mission was Apollo 17 in December of 1972. Apollo 17 was the last time a human was on the moon, nearly 50 years ago. The Artemis program is, in many ways, the natural companion to the Apollo program, the successor, the next step.
1: It is it is a parallel of Apollo, and, and it, just in the name artemis was apollo's twin sister this is our return to the moon it's you know the last time we've we put humans on the surface of the moon was 1972 and you know now we're looking at doing it in the 2020s so i mean it's it's been a long time coming but it is not just a repeat of the apollo missions um you know the apollo missions kind of you know we went there to go there and plant that flag and say, we beat you, USSR, you know, we won the space race. And then it happened to be towards the end of, of the Apollo missions, they're like, oh crap, we should probably do some science while we're here. So, you know, they send some scientists and geologists and, and we brought back a bunch of samples and, and we've learned so much about the moon from, from those later Apollo missions and, and learning about living and working in deep space.
0: Brendan is not joking around here. On Apollo 17, the very last Apollo mission, NASA sent up a geologist named Harrison Schmidt alongside two other astronauts, specifically for the purpose of analyzing the rocks on the surface of the moon. That just hadn't been a priority of the programs up to that point.
1: Mercury and Gemini, those were, and even Apollo were, I mean, these were just test pilots that the mission itself was the mission, right? But as we got to later in Apollo, they actually like, you know, they gave these guys geology training, like, you know, our favorite astronaut that we talk about all the time, John Young, like he, he had to get training uh, to learn how to, you know, crack open rocks and what kind of striations mean. And, you know, that kind of like, freshman year earth space science that he had to go through to go to go to the moon. And then, you know, NASA wised up and, and they, they got a guy named Harrison Schmidt was an Apollo astronaut and he was, he was a geologist, one of the first scientists turned astronauts. So he was training all of these guys, but then he ended up getting to go to the moon.
0: In many ways, that element of science outside of piloting a spacecraft was one of the few things that got added to the NASA plan way late in the game
1: ultimately, the goal of Apollo was to beat the Russians. And that's what we did. And then a lot of the NASA funding and federal funding went towards the space shuttle program and living and working in low Earth orbit and getting the space shuttle up and running, having this low Earth orbit tractor trailer to get heavy things into space and then helping build the International Space Station. And then since the 2000s, Really, the focus on exploration has been living and working in low Earth orbit at the International Space Station. So now is the time for Artemis to return to the Moon. And, and as I mentioned, it's not going to be, we're going to go back and plant those flags and then call it a day. There, there's this huge focus on developing a scientific base at the Moon and around the Moon.
0: In the 60s, when JFK wanted us on the Moon, it was the novelty that motivated his push to get us there but that was five decades ago, and science being done on the moon is now the top priority. They don't just want to study the science of the moon itself, but also study what life in space could look like, and that requires a base, and something else, something new. We have the International Space Station orbiting Earth, right? We do experiments there, and we send astronauts up there from around the world. Well, Brendan tells me of a structure that is going to be built around the moon. That is a project called Gateway.
1: So part of the Artemis program includes this thing called Gateway. And Gateway is like this tiny space station that's going to be in this really interesting orbit around the moon that will allow us to send our supplies and send our landers ahead of astronaut missions so everyone will meet up, they'll rendezvous at the gateway, and then use the gateway to go down to the surface of the moon. So you can kind of hang out there, you can stage your mission, you don't have to bring everything with you, and we'll be sending science and supplies and all that stuff there."
0: So this isn't just a stint on the moon, a few days of walking around, taking pictures, driving a lunar rover, or, famously in one case, golfing. The Artemis missions would be long-term, going back and forth between the surface of the moon and Gateway, exploring far more complicated things on the surface, including research into the possible presence of water on the surface of the moon.
1: The Artemis astronauts are going to head to, we believe, the south pole of the moon, which scientists think have these huge deposits of water underneath the surface, which are going to be super helpful to make resources and, and to, you know, find resources while you're there setting up these bases. So so Artemis is, is kind of like looking at it broadly is... of us living and working on the moon. We're not just going there to just do a quick visit like you, you know, take a road trip to the Grand Canyon, look in and then come back. No, we're actually looking to set up a camp there and do some really interesting science and try to harvest some water from there, which will help other, you know, interplanetary missions. We can make fuel to go to Mars from
0: the moon. Now that is a whole other topic. I think Mars may have to be another episode some other time. So, Artemis is going to be this huge program, multi-layered, multi-faceted, expansive, and essential. The beginning of a new era of science. And just as the right people had to be chosen to do those early Mercury tests, this brand new Artemis program needs a new kind of astronaut, a new variety of expertise. And Brendan tells me, NASA has found new things they're looking for, a brand new definition of the quote-unquote right stuff.
1: So NASA always has a a core of of astronauts, right? They always have astronauts on standby. They're they're selecting new astronauts every few years. So so there is the astronaut core. They also just named the Artemis cadre. So these will be the astronauts who will be in the Artemis program that are that are already training for these missions. Just to take a step back, the the first Artemis mission, Artemis 1, will not have a crew on board. It will launch from here. It will take the Orion space capsule, uh, which will carry humans into deep space. It'll go on a trip around the moon and then come back. Artemis 2 will actually take some astronauts on board. They will do that same mission, go around the moon and come back. And then Artemis 3 is the one that will actually go and dock to the gateway. And then those astronauts will step foot on the surface of the moon. So it's, it's a very quick cadence for these, for these missions. So NASA's already selected those astronauts.
0: Late last year, NASA announced its new cadre, a whole new class of astronauts that are going to lead the Artemis program back to the moon. The group is 18 individuals from all different backgrounds, nine men, nine women. Amongst their group, there are, of course, pilots and former astronauts. Some have flown in space before, some never, ever before. Some have already run medical experiments in space, like Jessica Meir, and some of them have been in space recently or are currently in space, like Victor Glover, who is currently on the International Space Station. Brendan tells me that NASA is very intentional in decisions like this, and Artemis is the next in a long history of choosing the right people for the job.
1: It's very interesting, the astronauts that they picked, because they are astronauts within the core, and they are, you know, the test pilots, you know, the, the, the flight engineers, but there's also a, a medical doctor, there's a geologist that was selected. So you can see that there is this focus on the, the scientific elements of this return to the moon in the people that they picked to go there. Um, some of these astronauts have been to space. Some of them have spent an extended period of time on the International Space Station. Others have not. And their first mission in, in space could be a mission to the moon. I interviewed one of them, um, and, and she commanded a, a naval submarine.
0: Real quick, her name is Kayla Barron. She was assigned to the USS Maine a submarine, where she served three patrols. After that, she went to do work at the Naval Academy until her selection to be an astronaut.
1: And she's never been to space. And she's saying, yeah, you know, maybe I might get selected. I might be on one of these Artemis missions. And, you know, I'm going to go from a submarine to <laughs> to walking on the moon. It's a really great question you asked, Nick, about the people, because that really shows the focus of of the Artemis program. And it is scientifically focused. But you do need those kind of, you know, the pilots and the engineers that, that know the hardware. But then you need those experts on the ground. Uh, that know what they're looking at scientifically and and what they can bring back uh, to better our understanding of of the moon, our solar system, and, and our universe.
0: I can't help but mention to Brendan at this point how similar this all sounds to the space shuttle program, the only of the major NASA programs that intersected with my life up to this point. Brendan agrees. Beginning in 1981, the space shuttle started carrying humans into space, and sooner rather than later, it was a more expeditious way to travel and do science in space. The ship was just larger and could fit more people on board. The very fact that we have an international space station today is because of the kind of work that the space shuttle was able to pull off. The reason the Hubble telescope functioned the way it did was because of the functionality of the space shuttle. All told, the space shuttle program flew a staggering 135 missions, carrying at its lowest two people on board and at its most eight. Experiments were being done now thanks in some parts to a laboratory called Space Lab on the space shuttle which allowed the astronauts to run experiments in low Earth orbit. The idea of getting somewhere on a rocket was a thing of the past by the 80s. We had room to explore all that space travel could teach us, and Artemis is the next natural development of everything that NASA was seeking to accomplish for the last six decades. It's also during this time, during the countless space shuttle programs conducted in the late 20th century, that the astronaut corps starts to change its demographics. For the previous missions, before the space shuttle, it had always been white men flying into space. With the dawn of the space shuttle program, things changed. You see the first American woman in space, one of my all-time heroes, Sally Ride, who traveled on STS-7. You see Ellison Onizuka, the first Asian American in space who tragically lost his life in the Challenger accident in 1986. You see Guillaume Bluford, the first African American in space on STS-8, who has subsequently spent his career working in the industry post-NASA. With the space shuttle, the astronauts started diversifying, not just in the people who were being selected, but also in the kinds of expertise on board the ship. Brendan tells me that those ideas were connected. He recently discussed it on the show. We
1: actually spoke with a a UCF space historian, Amy Foster, uh, recently, and she's done a lot of work on the first women astronauts. And the first women astronauts were picked because of the space shuttle program and this focus on science. So yeah, you were still selecting these test pilots and and folks with flying experience, but now it opened it up to, you know, biochemists, physicists, and all of these different other scientific avenues where there happened to be more women in those fields to begin with than, you know, than test pilots in, in the military, because there weren't women, you know, doing that. So this, this kind of move to, to science opened up the pool of applicants to the space shuttle program. You, you saw your, your first black astronaut, you saw your first women astronaut, there were six women astronauts selected in that, in that first class.
0: Artemis is seeking to answer that same kind of question. What kind of people do we need on the ship? Sally Ride, who broke the barrier and became the first woman in space, was also the youngest astronaut flying at 32. She also held a PhD in physics.
1: That was the focus of NASA was on science. Like Sally Ride was a physicist. Like that's why she was selected as, as an astronaut was because of of her academic and research background. It's, it's why the, the question about the, the Artemis astronauts was such a good one, because it does reflect the objectives of the program. The objectives of the program are scientific. They're not to go back and plant a flag. If if we want to do that, we can do that. But the fact of the matter is there's so much more scientific stuff that we want to learn from these missions. So that's why NASA is selecting these people. We need to learn how the human body lives and works in deep space for an extended period of time. That's why there's there's medical people that are picked in the Artemis cadre. We need to learn about the rocks and stuff that are on there. How to drill into this water, which is probably as hard as granite under these polar ice caps on the moon. We need a geologist down there on the ground to tell us how to do that. You know, we need these engineers to help figure out the the problems that these astronauts are going to face on there. So it's it's really the objective of the mission drives the people that are going there, which is why it's so fascinating to look at the astronauts that are heading there
0: and head there they are. If Artemis completes its objective, by its third official mission, we will have landed on the moon again. Humanity will have returned to the moon, and just as we know Neil Armstrong as the first man on the lunar surface, there will be another name soon remembered next to his. The name of the first woman to step off the Artemis vessel and onto the moon. Naturally, Brendan and I are both very, very excited. You know, we're both space history nerds. We know a lot of astronaut names. Brendan, obviously, more than me. But there are names that everybody knows. Everybody knows Armstrong, Aldrin, Glenn, Shepard. Those names are emblazoned in history. When I see those 18 faces, those 18 names that are bound to the legacy of the new program, the intrepid Artemis, you can't help but wonder which names you'll remember forever. Who is the next Alan Shepard? who is the next Sally Ride? It could be any of them. It could be all of them. Either way, a decade ago, that question wasn't even able to be asked. But now, Brendan tells me that the first Artemis launch may be sooner than we think. But I think the most exciting
1: thing will be that, that SLS launch, that first Artemis one launch, which right now it's tentatively scheduled for the end of this year that will likely move into early next year. But seeing that thing launch, um, is going to be incredible. And just to give your listeners some perspective, like the Space Shuttle, it had three RS-25 main engines, the Space Shuttle main engines, and then two solid rocket boosters. And, and remember how powerful that was. For SLS, they've got four of those engines. So they're they're using the RS-25 engines on SLS. You've got four of these engines and two of these solid rocket boosters. So, I mean, we're, we're kicking it up to 11 when it comes to... Uh, uh, to this launch. And and to be able to see just, I never, you know, I, I don't think you're that old either, but I never got to see a Saturn V launch. The, I mean, this is, this will be the closest thing that we're getting to a Saturn V launch in our lifetime. It's a long time coming and it's been a very expensive program and a very long road, but just to see the hardware on the pad and, and watch it go is going to be incredible but as a guy who likes watching rocket launches i cannot wait for artemis one and and the maiden voyage of sls from kennedy space center it's gonna be so cool
0: i have a feeling that in a year we're gonna have another episode (laughs) talking about that hopefully fingers crossed fingers crossed that we can have a conversation we should
1: do it there we should do the show from kennedy space center right after the launch
0: Hey, no promises, but there may be a podcast of Brendan and I weeping like children sometime in the next year after freshly watching a successful Artemis mission. We'll just have to wait and see. I've got my fingers crossed. Until then, we've got plenty of time to explore the stories of the next great heroes of American space travel in the Artemis cadre. We'll be sure to emblazon their names in history alongside the greats very, very soon. And when it's time for them to fly, they'll begin their journey where all the greats always did. On the sunny shores of Cape Canaveral, Florida. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, welcome. Welcome. There are so many new listeners nowadays, and I am so grateful for you listening, for you exploring the back catalog, and for you telling me what you enjoy about the show. If you are looking for a good place to jump in and listen to some of the older episodes, there are two episodes that prominently feature Brendan Byrne. I have put them in the link below. They are about John Young and the history of the first launches on Cape Canaveral. They are wonderful episodes. Brendan is always a treat to have on the show. Speaking of Brendan Byrne, you have got to listen to Are We There Yet? He recently celebrated his five-year anniversary, and there is an amazing video on the WMFE YouTube that includes a full one-hour conversation with two special guests. I'll let him tell you about it.
1: The the podcast is called Are We There You can get it wherever you get this podcast. We're also on NPR One, if that's how you listen. And the show actually airs on WMFE and WMFV here in Central Florida at 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday nights. Uh, we just had a, a great conversation with, we celebrate five years on the show, a conversation with uh, former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden, he's also a uh, retired astronaut, and then um, retired astronaut Nicole Stott. And we kind of talked about, you know, the future of space exploration, uh, specifically about, you know, making, you know, an equitable, diverse and, and inclusive space future for everyone, which I think is a really important topic. So we kind of talk a lot about that in our conversation.
0: Go listen to Are We There Yet? There is a link to his show in the description. It is the best. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. And you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFM Nick. If you are listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a five-star review there. Or you can subscribe to the show on Spotify. Either way, it helps the show become more visible. And that means a lot to me. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can check out more of their fabulous music at the link in the description. Alright, I will see you next Monday with a brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Be sure to get your vaccination as soon as you are able. And, of course, drink more water. Have a good week. I will see you next Monday. Take care of yourself.